This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we have a new episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. Amy, of course, is our chief Jared correspondent, and she was just awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Also, eventually the coronavirus pandemic will end, and inequality in America will be much worse. But inequality has been increasing for the last 30 or 40 years, and one of the key forces making inequality greater in America has been the Supreme Court. Adam Cohen will explain. His new book is Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-Year Battle for a More Unjust America. First up today, the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. It's been going on for a long time. Before Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, there was Jesse Jackson in the 80s. And before Jesse, there was George McGovern in 1972. And before that, there was Henry Wallace in the 1940s. Of course, he was vice president to FDR in the New Deal era. Now that history is the subject of a wonderful new book. It's called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, the Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. The author is John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back and congratulations on the new book. It's being published this week by Verso. It is, and I'm uh, delighted to talk to you about it uh, partially because it's a labor of love and partially because you're in it. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but we talk a lot about how the Republican Party became the party of Donald Trump and how moderate Republicans disappeared. But the question you ask is, what about the Democrats? How did they become the party of the Clintons and Wall Street? How did progressive Democrats disappear? Where did they go? So... Return with us now to 1944, when FDR's Vice President Henry Wallace crisscrossed the country, warning of the danger of American fascism. You know, I was a little surprised by this, because in 1944, the Democrats had been in power for 12 years with FDR as president. They had transformed the country with the New Deal. What was Henry Wallace talking about when he said there was a danger of American fascism. Well, he was talking about uh, something that was very, very different from European fascism, uh, from what we were fighting against in World War II, at least uh, in the physical form. Uh, he was not saying that the American fascist would be a Nazi, per se, somebody that would dress up in a, in a particular uniform or, or even engage in, in a particular language but that authoritarianism was always a threat and that it was a very real threat in the United States, one that needed to be understood. And and I guess the best way to say it uh, is that what Wallace set out to do in the mid-1940s was to assure that that the post-war period would address what he described as the roots of fascism, 
Uh, and that is a, a concentration of wealth and power. That is the uh, manipulation of the media uh, by economic and political elites. And that is the use of uh, that manipulated media to divide the great mass of people, the common man, the common woman, uh, against one another, uh, rather than to have them focus on the, the deeper struggle for economic and social and racial justice. And so Wallace actually wrote an essay, uh, which appeared pretty close to 76 years ago right now, uh, in the New York Times, and it was titled The Danger of American Fascism. And, uh, the roots of this book, fascinatingly enough, uh, are in Twitter. Um, I, I, uh, have a few followers on Twitter and I, I often tweet out quotes from the past, historical references, uh, be it, you know, some great social democrat or a feminist or Shirley Chisholm or Ron Dellums or, um, a couple of years ago, I started tweeting from Wallace's essay on the danger of American fascism. And I was always struck that every time I would take a, a quote from it about how media was manipulated or how a divisive politics was uh, advanced, massive numbers of people would, would respond. I mean, people were like, really? An American vice president in the 1940s said this? Huh. It seems so prescient. And uh, so that was, in, in many ways, that was the root of the book. It, it uh, led me to think two things. Number one, this is a subject worthy of exploration in this deeper sense, the sense that Wallace uh, took us to. But B, um, it was very valuable to, A, reintroduce people to Henry Wallace in, uh, for, with all of his flaws, with all of his weaknesses, but also with his strengths, and B, to see the rejection and the marginalization of Wallace as a lesson as regards how the Democratic Party frequently rejects and marginalizes its visionaries. The key moment in the marginalization of Henry Wallace came when he was not nominated to return to the ticket as vice president in 1944. Why didn't FDR and the Democrats keep Henry Wallace on the ticket as vice president in 1944? Well, this is one of the interesting things about Franklin Roosevelt. Um, he built a, a winning coalition for the Democrats, one that is almost unimaginable when you think about it. And this started in 1932, expanded in 36. And it it's went all the way from socialists, people who were avowed socialists and deeply committed, all the way over to southern segregationists. It included bankers and corporatists. It also included, you know, grassroots organizers, especially in the trade union movement. As you'll understand, when you put together a broad coalition, yes, you can win some big election victories, but um, you also have a tension within it. And Wallace really became the, the focus of that tension. Uh, Roosevelt had added him to the ticket in 1940, forced Wallace onto the ticket, it, to be quite clear. Um, and in doing so, uh, he had made the more conservative elements of the party accept this quite radical thinker. And they worked very, very well together. 
But always within the Roosevelt administration, there was a, a, there was a group of people, more conservative folks, who were trying to marginalize Wallace, who were terrified of um, his rise as a political figure, who were terrified by the fact that he might succeed Roosevelt. And here's the important thing to remember. Franklin Roosevelt um, was not in great health. Um, that's no secret. And that as he you know, moved toward the end of uh, his third term, uh, many people did have questions about whether um, he had the, the physical strength to do a fourth term. Um, he determined that he did, in large part because he wanted to win World War II. And he wrote a letter to the Democratic Convention in which he said, um, if I was a delegate to this convention, I would vote for Henry Wallace. Um, but yeah. he didn't expend immense energy to keep Wallace on the ticket because he, he was, frankly, afraid that the coalition might break apart to such an extent that um, he couldn't get reelected. And so he didn't put the pressure on that he had in 1940. So it fell to Wallace, and um, and won't belabor all of it, but the interesting thing was Wallace knew he would have this fight. So he traveled across the United States. He went to Detroit, a city that had seen horrific race riots in uh, the summer of 1943, and he spoke to a mass crowd of uh, an integrated crowd of trade unionists. And he said at, at that rally, we've got to recognize something. We're fighting against people in Europe who divide humanity based on race, based on ethnicity, based on religion. And people in America who do the same thing are practicing an Americanized fascism. And so he identified racism and segregation as an Americanized fascism. This basically, he threw the gauntlet down, and he traveled across the country meeting with Jewish groups and Hispanic groups and African Americans and trade unionists and radicals, um, and said, look, you know, there's a fight going on here, and you have to understand it. This is the fight for what will come after World War II, when we come home from beating the, the Nazis, when we come home from beating the fascists, you know, what will we do at America, in America, to make sure that this divisiveness, this hate, um, doesn't infect our country and that it doesn't take another form here? Um, as you got toward the, the convention in the summer of 44, uh, because of what Wallace had done, he had, he had so delineated the differences within the party, the differences between those who were willing to compromise on segregation, those who were willing to compromise on sexism, because he was out talking about the Equal Rights Amendment, those who were willing to compromise on economic justice, uh, and those who weren't willing to compromise, uh, that the leaders of the party, uh, beyond Roosevelt, essentially tried to exclude Wallace from the convention. Finally, um, an agreement was made that he could second Franklin Roosevelt's nomination. Just that. Um, so Wallace arrived from Iowa. He was an Iowan uh, with his you know, bag, carrying it himself, walked to his hotel, uh, had no great organized you know, effort on the floor of the convention. But he went to the podium uh, on the third day of the convention and uh, delivered a speech in which he said – didn't talk about himself at all. Talked about Roosevelt. Talked about what the Democratic Party had to be in the future. And he ha- said, 
It has to be a party that goes straight down the line for racial justice. It has to be a party that recognizes that we have to operate in the world on the basis uh, in the post-war era of diplomacy and trying to promote cooperation. It has to be a party that challenges the old orthodoxies and makes sure that we never go back to a Great Depression or to a rise of authoritarianism around the world. Um, it was such an inspired speech that... Um, there was a, a groundswell at the convention to renominate him immediately. Um, and it was so intense that the organizers of the convention, the party leadership, the big city bosses, the southern segregationists, gaveled the convention out of order, shut it down um, so that that could not happen. And the next day, uh, they rearranged the tickets to the convention. They uh, restructured uh, all sorts of things. And frankly, they worked, as it, one historian described it, they worked through the night with, you know, every promise of ambassadorships and, you know, campaign money and everything else. And they thwarted, um, they thwarted this effort. And I, what I argue in the book was that was the beginning of a pattern of compromise um, which we see to this day, where the Democratic Party has visionaries, has people who lay out the possibility of uh, a transformational politics, uh, but often elites, powerful figures within the party, uh, manipulate the process in order to make sure that, uh, that that vision does not become the defining force within the party. Well, people who have heard of Henry Wallace know him as a failed third-party candidate on the left in 1948. He left the Democratic Party and became the candidate of something called the Progressive Party, which historians all teach was supported by the Communist Party. People think of Wallace as a dupe of the communists, and in the end, he got only a little over one million votes, 2.4% of the total Truman got 24 million votes in 1948. What's the truth about the Progressive Party of 1948, and uh, how do you explain what a huge uh, disaster it turned out to be? When Henry Wallace was marginalized in 1944, when he was pushed out of the vice presidency, he immediately went to Roosevelt and said, you know, I understand what happened here. I'm still deeply committed to the New Deal project. I'm deeply committed to uh, World War II, to defeating fascism internationally. Um, I'll do whatever is necessary. Roosevelt was so inspired by that that he said, um, look, you can have any cabinet post you want. And I will I'll make sure that happens. And let's keep working together. Let's see what we can do. And it was clear that they reconciled very, very quickly. Uh, in the fall campaign of 1944, they, they were intersecting in all sorts of ways and really bouncing ideas off each other. Wallace became Roosevelt's Secretary of Commerce and at the same, and wrote essentially an agenda for the fourth term, which was all about job creation, housing, you know, addressing all these fundamental issues. Truman was the vice president, but Truman was not necessarily um, even a, a central figure to a lot of that thinking. Unfortunately, Roosevelt died. And Wallace wrote in his diary that as they took Roosevelt's body to Hyde Park for burial, um, you could feel uh, the New Deal unraveling. Hmm. And um, in those 1945, 1946, Wallace continued to serve with Truman for a time. Eventually, Wallace was forced out of the administration, as were most of the original New Dealers. And Truman's administration became a much more centrist, you know, democratic administration. This is not to beat up on Harry Truman in every way, but it's more to say that it just wasn't that that visionary uh, politics that really extended in a genuine sense from the New Deal. 
And so Wallace became very frustrated with this, but he was also a very popular figure. And so the the decision was made to mount a third-party campaign that was very much in the tradition of the popular front, pulling together kind of everybody on the left. And that did include the communists. It included socialists. It included, you know, radicals of all sorts of uh, different traditions. Uh, it was a fascinating campaign because uh, it did succeed in some senses. You biggest sense that it succeeded in was uh, in seeking to break the color bar in the South. Wallace refused to campaign before segregated audiences. And so some of the first great integrated rallies in the South uh, in the in this kind of post-war era uh, and really a lot of underpinnings of, of struggle for racial justice, Wallace was a part of. He was backed by Paul Robeson and a young Harry Belafonte and many other um, figures. He was also backed by Albert Einstein and Frank Lloyd Wright. And uh, you, know, you just kind of run down the list of people that supported him. And not all of those folks uh, were hard on the left. Some were simply folks who really believed in, in Wallace. And so in some senses, at least in early stages of it, he did build out uh, a, a popular front. But the campaign was poorly run, um, and uh, it had a lot of flaws to it, and ultimately it was tremendously marginalized in the media uh, by attacks from from Truman and others, and, and the Republicans. And so it, it didn't end well. And one of the things I wrestle with in the book is uh, the great challenges that we put in front of third parties, how hard we make it to mount a third party campaign. And Acknowledging mistakes that Wallace and others made, uh, wrestle with that issue and the question of whether it might have made more sense for Wallace to stay within the Democratic Party uh, and try to you know, fight for the soul of the party within it rather than to go out. It is something that I, I do write a lot about in the book um, and write a lot about a, a struggle that was interesting enough in 1947 group uh, very strong in California called Democrats for Wallace, and they really tried to keep him within the party and get him to challenge Truman for the nomination. Of course, this takes us straight to Bernie Sanders in 2016, a Democratic Socialist who decides not to run as a third party candidate, but to run inside the Democratic Party for the Democratic nomination, the path that Henry Wallace did not take in 1948. That was an incredibly bold decision. Seems to us like it turned out to be the right one. Where does Bernie Sanders fit in 2016 in the history that you tell that begins with Henry Wallace in 1944? I know you have talked to Bernie Sanders about this very question. Yeah, I have a little bit. And I've talked to him a lot about the New Deal and that New Deal era. Sanders in 2013, 2014, when he was thinking about making his first presidential run, really struggled with the question of whether to run as an independent or as a Democrat. Um, and, uh, and I interviewed him for the nation where he actually, you know, kind of acknowledged the, the things he had to think about. He chose to run as a Democrat uh, because of a couple of factors uh, that it is so hard to run as an independent to, or as a third party candidate to create a third party. It's such a difficult thing to do that he chose to run as a Democrat because you then didn't have to go through all the battles to get ballot lines, petition signatures, structural creation of a party. You could kind of go deep into the debate. But, you know, the flip side of that is, as I think many Sanders backers will say today, is you do run up against 
the party infrastructure and, and against the more conservative forces in the party, the more corporate forces in the party. And, and it's, it's, it's a terrible battle, right? It's a great struggle. I, I go through this in the book all the way from the forties to the, 70, or well, into the 70s looking at McGovern, the 80s looking at, at Jesse Jackson and, and all sorts of other campaigns, things that, uh, Tom Hayden did with, uh, Campaign for Economic Democracy and that Ron Dellums did and, and Bella Abzug and so many other people. What I ultimately conclude is that, that there, there have been successful progressive efforts within the party and there have been successful efforts to move it forward. Uh, but there have also been really deep disappointments and a lot of frustration. You write about visiting the farm in Iowa where Henry Wallace was born. I think you went there with Bernie Sanders just last summer. I did. And Sanders was campaigning in that area. And, and, uh, and so we, we were at the farm. Uh, and the farm, I, I just have to emphasize, uh, Henry Wallace has been so written out of our history uh, that the farm where he was born is on a on what's called a minimum maintenance road, and you're warned, uh, you know, not to go down it unless you, you've got good tires and stuff. So, I mean, unlike you know most vice presidents or presidents, he he has not been uh, accorded his due, um, and and yet the farm is well maintained. Uh, we were in an upstairs room there where they've got some of the old historical artifacts, you know, Time magazine covers, pictures of Roosevelt and Wallace campaigning together, a host of other things. And, and, uh, we did have a long conversation there. I interviewed him, uh, in, in the upstairs room at Wallace's farm, uh, about the New Deal and about, you know, kind of maintaining this, this ambitious vision. Sanders really did uh, in his, especially in his 2020 campaign, uh, or has in his 2020 campaign, sought to kind of reanimate the economic bill of rights, this uh, visionary proposal that Roosevelt made at the last stages of his presidency and that Wallace really tried to bring into our politics. And then Sanders also tried to talk about a different foreign policy and uh, the idea that, you know, America should be less committed to you know, a huge Pentagon militarism, uh, and more committed to diplomacy and cooperation. Um, and so I wouldn't suggest that Sanders is, you know, an embodiment of Wallace. He's not. He's different, uh, in, in many, many different ways. But it is a continuation of this struggle for the soul of the party. And I could have concluded the book there, but I wanted to look more deeply at what the Sanders campaign meant going forward and what all of these campaigns meant going forward. And so I, I went to Detroit um, around the same time with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was there campaigning for some candidates in the Michigan primary. And as it happened, we sat down and I did an interview not many blocks, really, uh, from where Wallace had given his remarkable speech in 1943, calling out Americanized fascism and calling out racism. There we talked about about the incredible struggles um, to you know change a party, to change a country, um, and the movement-based politics, the fact that it doesn't happen in short order, that it often takes a long time, and also about the f- possibility that this time, uh, then we, of course, didn't have coronavirus developing in the way it is or the economic crisis that we now see. But even then, back in, in the summer of 2019, about the challenges of this time with technology and automation, so many other issues, 
and the need for big ideas, the need for visionary approaches. And Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, uh, we're standing in the parking lot. Um, it was around midnight. Uh, we were in, in Dearborn, just on the edge of Detroit. And she was talking about how important it was to have a huge vision of what the Democratic Party could be. And she talked about Roosevelt and that period. And the last thing she said to me was, I want to be that party again. I want to be that party again. John Nichols, his new book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. It's being published this week by Verso. John, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. I appreciate it, John. Thank you so much for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, those kids are in trouble this week. For that, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's best known for her work on Haiti, and she was just awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship for next year. Amy, welcome back, and congratulations on the Guggenheim. Thanks so much, John. Yes, I'm really pleased about that. Well, let's start today with Jared. We've been reading some new news about Project Air Bridge. That's his White House coronavirus project. First, remind us, what is Project Air Bridge? It's big. It's a huge billion-dollar um, taxpayer-funded program to bring PPE into the United States largely from China, through private contractors. And Jared is running it. Private contractors both to purchase the stuff and to bring it in. What is the latest news about the success of Project Airbridge? We don't really know because the Trump administration has apparently issued orders to FEMA, which is part of the Trump administration in a sense, not to reveal where these materials are going. So they're brought into the country at taxpayer expense. They go somewhere, but we're not entitled to know that. The New York Times now has a Freedom of Information Act going to try and find out where the federal government is distributing these supplies. The FEMA said, we can't tell you that. And they also added, in an aside, we would normally tell you that, but we can't tell you that. So for all we know, they're going to... um, Republican voting states and swing states where, you know, perhaps a few N95 masks might just turn the vote to Trump in November, in spite of the fact that he would like to liberate all those states. Well, in other Jared news, he's been sort of cheerful about Trump's efforts at beating the virus. He he appeared on, on Fox uh, TV news the same day that the American death toll from the virus topped the American death toll in Vietnam. And 
what was his approach uh, that day? Well, John, first, you, who are an expert in that era of American history, can perhaps tell us how long it took the United States to accrue 60,000 deaths in Vietnam. How long did it take, John? Well, it depends when you start, but you could say from 1963 to 1975, 12 years, 13 years, something like that. So 60,000 in 13 years and here in three months, 60,000. So that's what was happening when Jared said on Fox News, you know, this is a great success. We've had a great success in the United States. And I think we're going to be really rocking, as my <laughs> listeners may know, that is not me, but a quote. I think we're going to be really rocking again by July. Meanwhile, meanwhile, internally, the Trump administration privately projects a steady rise in the next week in deaths because of opening up the economy in various states which the Trump administration has been pushing. So they expect by June 1st, there will be 3,000 deaths per day, 200,000 new cases per day. They know that internally at the White House. And yet, Jared is going out, who works in the White House, by the way, and saying that we'll be really rocking again by July. Well, maybe by really rocking, he's talking about having the most deaths in the world. Well, enough about Jared. What's uh, Ivanka been up to lately? She was in the news about the what seemed to be a perfectly modest idea of going to a Passover Seder with Jared's parents. She's such a good Jewish girl. <laughs> um, yeah, she took a private plane with her children to some uh, airport, I don't know where, to go to a shutdown Trump facility in... Bedminster. Bedminster. I knew it sounded like a British official building. Bedminster, New Jersey. And she went for a Seder, uh, leaving her majestic Calorama mansion and not doing what the rest of the Jewish community in the United States did and in Israel and in France, which was have a Zoom Seder because they didn't want to congregate and thereby infect all the elders in the family. They apparently had a Seder together. Or anyway, that was her excuse for moving her family, as far as I understand it, to Bedminster. They said they were not violating the stay-at-home orders in part because this was a private plane. Do you know anything more about this? Is this Air Force One or what is it? Maybe they chartered a plane. Maybe they own a tr plane. Maybe it's a, a Jared family plane. I don't know what this plane, private plane, is that they took. I wonder if it was Air Force One and they charged the taxpayer. So that means that Jared went to a Seder with his family and who knows who else and childcare people. Who knows? Staff, perhaps, from the Bedminster facility. We cannot know. And then he went back to Washington to tell us how we're going to be really rocking in July. Was he wearing a mask? I doubt it because nobody in the White House wears a mask except for one person we saw in a photo who's anonymous. They all stand around next to each other. Um, so he could easily have infected everybody in the White House. Let's talk about the masks business. The president has made it clear that he's not going to wear a mask. And as you say, there's lots of photographs of staffers meeting and... They're not wearing masks, but there are some members of the president's family who are wearing masks. Tell us about them. Oh, Ivanka and Arabella, 
her daughter posted this really cute photograph. I, I have a very soft spot for Arabella. She's <laughs> saying happy birthday in Chinese. I love that girl. And also, apparently, she's an adept homemaker, Arabella, at a young age, because she sewed her mommy a mask, and her mommy sewed hers one, and they appear in an Instagram photo together. Really cute, except Arabella's isn't as good as Ivanka's. Ivanka made the better mask. But, of course, she runs a garment industry. She ran a garment industry company, so she should know how to make a face mask. So that's what they've been doing at home, and they posted their little picture wearing it. But they, they can wear masks, if I may stoop to some analysis here, because they're women. Women can wear masks, but real men who sit behind, what is the name of his desk again, John? I can never remember it. I have a psychological problem. <laughs> Enterprise or encounter or something Performer, like that. Former reconstructor, really big man desk. Um, he sits behind that desk and he can't wear a, a mask because that would be too embarrassing, you know. And Pence went to the hospital. Which hospital in New York? Was it Sloan Kettering? He went into the COVID area and he didn't wear a mask and he was surrounded by doctors wearing a mask and when he was asked why he didn't wear a mask he said because he wanted to look them in the eyes he has that same problem of not knowing where the mask goes he thinks <laughs> the mask like, like it's halloween no <laughs> um but i think it's really interesting to think about the trump white house and the mask and who's wearing one and who isn't because if the president doesn't wear a mask you know how people around presidents are if he doesn't wear a mask, all the men there are going to think they shouldn't wear masks. And then if I were the wife and mother of the children of one of those men who was in the Oval Office standing around with Trump and Pence, unmasked, I, I wouldn't let them back in my house. Unmasked takes a kind of a different meaning in this context than the, what we usually talk about, unmasking the uh, White House. Uh, I should add here that... Ivanka is not just posting a cute picture of herself and her daughter. She is recommending to her millions of Instagram followers, everybody should wear a mask. Here's a fun project for you and your kids to take up at home. We did it. You should do it, too. Right. Absolutely. And who do you think the people are who are among her one million followers? What do you think the percentage is of he-men who sit behind the <laughs> Endeavor reconstitution desk? The percentage is very low. Donald Trump might be her only male follower. But anyway, she's recommending this to moms and young moms, stay-at-home people to wear their masks. And it's good. She's good. I, I like her for that. You should be recommending it. There's a little bit of discord in the Trump family on this. And speaking of discord, there's one other Trump woman who has also advocated wearing masks by appearing in a mask online. And who is that? That's Melania. And I think that's great, too. She was right to do that. And there's always discord there. Whatever he does, she doesn't do. Whatever he doesn't do, she does. But <laughs> I also have been known to say about the mask that the mask is a great thing for the women of Beverly Hills and people like Melania, because right now it's harder to go to your cosmetic surgeon to get your injections and to have your little lifts. So if you wear a mask over, you know, uh, two thirds of your face, you're hiding two months of damage. And so I can see why Melania is wearing it until she can get someone to come to the White House to do her injections for her. Not that she has injections. Okay, so we've talked about uh, Jared. We've talked about uh, Ivanka and Melania and Arabella. What about Eric? What about er little Eric, as we call him? What's he been up to? Teeny little Eric. 
<laughs> at the beginning of the administration was put in charge of the Trump winery and uh, Trump sort of divested himself of it. Although as the most of the news reports point out, the Trump organization still owns the land the Trump winery is on, but Eric owns Trump winery and is in charge of it. And so he, <laughs> he put up a Twitter post saying, you know, if you're running out of quarantine wine, come get it at the Trump winery. We have great wines, blah, 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 blah. Which, you know, taking advantage of all the death and destruction that's happening uh, and people being at home wanting to drink, he's trying to profit from that. He's helping. Uh, but, <laughs> but one of the interesting things about this, of course, is that they own a winery and Eric's running it. And one kind of immigrant was allowed into the country when Trump began to uh, crack down on all immigration to the United States. And that immigrant is an agricultural worker. And those are the people who work on the Trump winery. So Trump's immigration policy favors the workers on his own uh, plantations. Uh, but there was in the Twitter uh, comments after uh, Eric was trying to sell his quarantine wine, there was a reply that I would like to read in full. Love this wine, bold, but with nice top notes, redolent of incest, treason, charity fraud, crushed Adderall, and dementia. I did not write that reply, but it's a good one. Last but not least, you found you found for us a story about the wives and girlfriends of of Don Jr. and uh, and and Eric Trump. Yes, Trump's campaign, his campaign fund for 2020, is I would have to say secretly, although now that I'm telling you this, folks, it's not so secret and it's been reported on, but attemptedly in secret, um, paying Lara Trump. That's Eric's wife, and uh, Don's girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, uh, $180,000 a year through the campaign manager's private company so that uh, avoiding the um, possible legal consequences of just directly siphoning it out of the campaign funds, they move the campaign funds into Parscale, I forget his first name, into Parscale's uh, He's the campaign manager and he has a private company. And then it goes out $18,000 a month to each of these women for being like uh, campaign spokespeople around the country, et cetera, or for doing nothing or for tweeting and being attractive. I don't really know what it's for. I don't know what their specific role in the campaign is, but they are making $180,000 each a year, which shows that there is some benefit to going out with one of the Trumps. Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent with this week's episode of The Children's Hour. Amy, thanks so much for telling us all about it today. You are so welcome. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Eventually, the coronavirus pandemic will come to an end, but inequality in America will remain. It's been increasing for the last 
40 years, and the current economic shutdown will only accelerate that increase. We usually think of growing inequality as a result of the globalization of the economy. But Adam Cohen says the Supreme Court has been a key force promoting inequality in America. Adam is a former member of the New York Times editorial board and a senior writer for Time magazine. He's practiced law at the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU. His new book is Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Adam Cohen, welcome to the program. Well, it's good to be here, John. Well, a lot of older people like me grew up thinking of the Supreme Court as a liberal force. Uh, the Warren Court is known, of course, for Brown versus Board of Education, for the Miranda case, where they said you need to be told you have a right to remain silent if you're going to be questioned by the police. We remember also the ruling that any indigent person accused of a major crime is entitled to a lawyer. That was Gideon v. Wainwright. And then there's the Warren Court's rulings that directly affected poor people. Tell us about those. Sure. Uh, for a brief period of time, and it was the Warren era, uh, the Supreme Court actually did champion the rights of poor people. They struck down the poll tax in 1966. Um, and then they also began going to bat for the rights of people on welfare. Uh, a major case called uh, uh, King v. Smith, in which the Supreme Court struck down the so-called man-in-the-house rule, which took welfare benefits away from any household where the welfare mother had a boyfriend uh, visiting even occasionally. And that was actually a huge big deal. Hundreds of thousands of children around the country were denied welfare benefits because of that. So with, with decisions like that, the Warren Court actually was uh, championing the rights of the poor. Now, the court gets a lot of credit for that, but somebody else brought these cases to the court. Somebody organized them. Somebody had the vision. Tell us about who that was. Sure. At the time, there really was a very robust poverty law network of uh, poverty lawyers who worked in many cases out of uh, storefront offices in, in neighborhood legal clinics um, who were ensconced in some of the major law schools. And they were planning a lot of this litigation and they were also being pushed to plan a lot of this litigation by a very robust poor people's movement led by people like George Wiley that was actually out in the streets demanding better rights for welfare recipients. So there was a whole poverty movement going on, and that put pressure on the court. Now, all that was 50 years ago. What's happened to the rulings affecting poor people since then? Richard Nixon gets elected and, and very quickly gets four appointments to the court. Um, uh, in part, that's because he was replacing some older justices. But there's also a story I tell in the book about how Abe Fortas, the most liberal member of the court, was actually threatened and blackmailed off of the court by Nixon and his Justice Department. Um, they threatened to put him in jail. They threatened to put his wife in jail. And uh, uh, he had committed some ethical, uh, I would say, uh, uh, unfortunate acts, but nothing that was criminal, nothing that violated a court rule. But anyway, Nixon makes Fortas is one of the four seats he gets to fill. When he gets four seats, the court completely changes, very quickly um, renounces the rights of the poor in a, in a very important case called uh, Dandridge v. Williams, where the court not only rules against the particular welfare family in that case, but basically says we're no longer going to get involved in the niceties of how and how much welfare uh, states and localities give to people. So very quickly, one of the first groups that the court abandons when Nixon's justices take over is poor people and particularly people on welfare. Well, the thesis of your 
book Supreme Inequality is that the court, since not about 1970, has been a key force promoting inequality. I'm one of the people who always thought increasing inequality in America was a part of a global phenomenon, the result of globalization, especially of the manufacturing economy, and that's much bigger than the Supreme Court, or is it? Well, that's right. I think globalization and the movement of jobs uh, to lower wage parts of the world is part of it. Automation is part of it. And then people very often, when they look for policies, look for policies enacted by the president and Congress. So things like the Bush tax cuts and so forth. But as I argue in the book, the Supreme Court actually has a very large and underrecognized role. And the way I make that argument is in part by looking at the 2018 World Inequality Report, which was put out by Thomas Piketty and other uh, very uh, renowned economists. And they look at inequality around the world. In America, they say the two driving forces for the growth in inequality in the modern era has been educational inequality, and the lack of progressive taxation. In the book, I show how the Supreme Court, with a couple of very important, very bad rulings right after the Nixon justices arrived, they ensured that we would have unequal educational opportunity. And then I argue that the court's campaign finance ruling, starting in 1976 with Buckley versus Vallejo, gave so much power to wealthy people because of their campaign contributions that it almost made inevitable that we would get rewrites of the tax law that made it much less uh, progressive. So both of the factors identified by Thomas Piketty and the other economists, I think were really driven in large part by the Supreme Court. So corporations, banks, the rich in America, with the help of the Supreme Court's conservative majority, have gotten a lot of what they want over the last 40 or 50 years. Have they achieved their goals, or is there still more on the wish list uh, of what they want from the Supreme Court? The fear is that if, as the court continues, and particularly if a couple new conservative justices join it, there's a larger agenda to start striking down really parts of the New Deal. And, you know, people forget now, but until 1937, there was a very different idea on the Supreme Court about what the power of the federal government was. And for years now, conservatives have been holding conferences and writing papers about the so-called pre-1937 Constitution and how they would like to get back to that, a Constitution that, as they see it, doesn't allow Congress to do much of what the New Deal made, you know, part of our federal government. So in America right now, we have more than 100 million eligible voters, but you say there are really only five votes that count. That's the number required for majority decision on the Supreme Court. What can the other 100 million people do about that? Well, one of the things I point to in the book is just that the Republicans have been so much better at winning the battle to control the court. And, you know, it's it started uh, in the modern era with uh, the the four justices that Nixon appointed, and in particular with driving Fortis off the court. And it's, it's fascinating to think of the Fortis um, removal as being sort of a bookend with the Merrick Garland uh, 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 fiasco, right, where Nixon manages to uh, steal one seat that should have been a liberal seat by driving Fortis off the court. Mitch McConnell uh, manages to block a liberal from uh, uh, joining the court by not having hearings on Merrick Garland. And uh, um, and, and if, if Merrick Garland had been confirmed, we would have a, a majority liberal court once again. So look at how both of those were necessary to lock in the court that we have. So it, the Republicans have just been better at this. So, 
you know, Nixon and McConnell been better, but also um, the justices themselves. The, the Republican justices do a much better job of handing off their seats. We saw Anthony Kennedy step down uh, not long ago when he was in apparently quite good health, and he'll probably live, you know, uh, God willing, quite a while longer. Um, but he stepped down at the last moment he knew that a Republican president would be able to make an appointment with, for sure, a Republican Senate to confirm that appointment. Um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer did not do that during the Obama administration. So, so there's all that, and then there's also just the focus that the Republican voters and electorate have on the court. They really care about the court. They pressure their uh, candidates to, to, you know, toe the line on the court. And there's a lot of evidence that they turn out in order to keep the court. Democrats need to make the court much more central to their political project. We need to talk about what the court is doing, not just to poor people, but to the middle class. And, you know, a decision like Citizens United, um, you know, 80 percent of the American public opposed it, including a majority of Republicans. Democrats need to get out the message that this is a very plutocratic court and that should be something that would appeal to swing voters, moderate voters in the suburbs, as well as to the Democratic base. Adam Cohen, his new book is Supreme Inequality the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. I enjoyed it, John. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds, as always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.